What is up, everybody? Welcome back to First Down Rundown, where we give you a holistic view of the world of sports. Whether you're a casual fan or an avid fan, this is the place for you. We're your two hosts. I'm Hayden Vozar. He's Matt Vozar. Today is Monday, October 17th. We hope that you all had a relaxing weekend watching lots of great football. This was, this was probably one of the greatest weekends in football, both college football and NFL combined, that we've had in a very long time. I know that it's the best one I've had in years, and I spent all weekend watching, and I didn't really do a lot of my homework because of it. But that's okay. You got you to gotta sacrifice some things, you know, priorities, right? No, I'm just kidding. I, I take school seriously. But that being said, it was still... Honestly, this one of our topics for today is literally just acknowledging the fact that, yes, it did live up to be the best weekend in college football in 40 years. I mean, I haven't been alive for 40 years, so I don't know if there was a, a weekend that was better within the 30 years that I wasn't watching college football. But, hey, compared to every other weekend of college football that I've watched, it was really good. So with that being said, Matt, how are you? I am also doing well, and I share in your feelings and emotions and everything that went into that amazing weekend that you had as well. Um, and, it, and it really, like I said, like we did the whole podcast on last Thursday talking about, you know, this is going to be the greatest weekend in college football. A lot happened, and it was a great weekend in college football. Same with the NFL. I mean, it was, it was, it was good. And I'm glad that I had time to watch it because you always kind of get into the fall and you got, you know, places to go. You got pumpkin patches to pick. You got a lot of stuff to be doing and there's time for football and all of that. Okay. That's the important part that you have to remember sometimes is, yeah, I love carving up a pumpkin, but sometimes I just got to see Tennessee take down some goalposts. All right. So that, that was the, that was the highlight of the weekend, obviously. And we're going to get into all that. Um, but, but yeah, so, you know, great weekend as well. This podcast, as Hayden mentioned, obviously we're going to go over college football and NFL as we always do, but also going to talk about a little bit of some other sports, because this is the first time running a podcast. We, we talk about all different types of sports. And uh, now that we kind of have a little, you know, the other sports are starting to heat up a little bit uh, or either heat up or start up. Uh, that'll also be at the end of the podcast and kind of just, just, just a general brief discussion about that stuff. So really excited for it. Yeah. Well, you know, what wasn't a good takeaway from this weekend was the fact that my intramural football team here at UVA lost in the first round of the playoffs. And not only did we lose, but we got beat 48 to zero. That's, that's not a very, it's not a very good scope. Now there is a caveat to this. And this caveat is probably one of the most bizarre things you'll ever hear. And it's that during the regular season, well, first of all, actually, so there's 10 teams that were in this playoff bracket. Right. And I think there was like 40 teams altogether in the whole league. And so we were one of the top 10 teams. We were, I think we were actually ranked fifth because we went undefeated and we had a pretty good point differential margin. And so we got placed fifth. And so we have like a draft for the playoff spots and somehow the number one team in the league who crushed everybody in the regular season, they didn't draft their, their position or their position in the bracket for the playoffs. And so they got put against us in the first week. And we were, again, we were the five seed. We should not have been playing the one seed and that's what happened. And so we got absolutely crushed. It was, uh, it was against a team that during the regular season through four regular season games, they had put up over 200 points and let up only eight. Like, come on, dude. This That's averaging per game. That's averaging a little over 50 points and letting up two points per game. Like, dude, there's there was one team that scored one touchdown against them the whole entire 
season and every other team scored zero points, including us, but we almost did score a touchdown. It's just that it didn't happen because it was, it was, there was a pick in the end zone. Okay. But it was, um, I don't need to explain it. I just, I threw it. So I'll take the, I'll, I'll take the blame for that. But yeah, it was just really rough. And then towards the end of the game, we just started messing around and putting everybody at different positions and just kind of having fun with it and getting safeties and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it was still pretty fun and it was in the rain too, which is pretty cool. And we thought that we had an advantage over, over them because of that, but I think they all played football in high school or they all played some kind of high school sport. And so they were all just super athletic and we have an athletic team as well, but they had this dude that played DN in high school that when he rushed the passer, he would get there in like one second. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough loss, but Hey, can't win them all on to next season and on to college football. So the best weekend in college football for the past past 40 years, in fact, did not disappoint at all. We had two huge upsets, Tennessee over Alabama and Utah over, over USC. Those were two of the games that we previewed last week and lots of storylines came out of, all of these games. So let's just go over a few of them. I'm going to kind of mention the first one and I'm going to let Matt kind of take over and talk about it a little bit. Alabama is literally last in division one football. They are 131st for penalties committed. They've committed a league high 66 penalties through seven games and 17 of those penalties came on Saturday against Tennessee. And I think 16 of those penalties came against Texas when they beat Texas 2019. So I'm going to ask this question. That's and in case you I mean, that's 23 penalties if they committed 66 penalties or no, that's 33 penalties. If they've commit, committed 66, that means that literally half of their penalties this season have been committed in two games. And those two games, they either lost or they only won by one point in a very surprising victory. So I'm going to ask this question to Matt. Is it safe to say that Bama is just beating themselves in some of these games if they've played or should we actually be worried about them? Well, I think that's almost kind of answering the question within the question right like if if it turns out that they are beating themselves we might have to worry about it at the same time it is Alabama it's Nick Saban okay and and this is a story program that they don't beat themselves and they don't really lose to they don't ever beat themselves nor do they ever really get beat in general right and and so we saw that this weekend obviously happened in the in the, in the Tennessee game but it was very interesting to see how many penalties were called on Alabama. And you haven't really seen that yet this season. I mean, it was a great kind of stat to pull out from, you know, by Hayden, basically, right. There's 131 college football teams and Alabama has the most penalties. I mean, like of every, they have more penalties than Southern miss. They have more penalties than Arkansas state. All right. Like all these teams, random places, Alabama's leading the nation. So that was definitely a great stat to pull by Hayden. And it just kind of shows that this team is a little bit, it's just a little bit different than most of the Bama teams that we've seen in the past. And the crazy part is going into the season, it was almost like, and I think Nick Saban even said this before the season, he said, you know, right. Last year, obviously they lost in the championship to Georgia and, you know, they brought a lot of their people back. Obviously they lost, you know, you lost Jamison Williams, you lose your receivers and, and everything. And they lost some defensive pieces, but they bring back Will Anderson, who's probably the best defensive player in college football. They bring back Mike Bryce Young, who won the Heisman trophy last year. And so it's like, I think he said at one point, he said, this is, this team is better than we were last year. Essentially that was a rebuilding year and we lost, you know, barely lost in the, in, in the, uh, you know, college football championship. Well, it's looking like this team is more of a rebuilding year than, than it was, especially last year. And I think that it just, you can kind of see at some points, the offense just doesn't look intact. And I think that's because they've gotten, they've gotten so used to 
how great the wide receivers have been. I mean, I think that there's some crazy stat out there that's like Alabama wide receivers have been picked inside the top 10 or there's like multiple Alabama receivers have been picked inside the top 10, like three out of the last five years, which is, if you think about it, like to get that many receivers, right. In terms of recruiting and, and performance and coaching and everything that goes into this, that stat is insane because so many good receivers have come through this Alabama program. And right now they just don't really have even really one guy, you know, usually you think of, okay, there's that one guy who can just get it done. Amari Cooper, Jerry Judy, uh, you know, the, the list goes on and Devonte Smith won the Heisman himself one year. Right. So like all these guys, the list goes on and on about guys who can just kind of carry this team receiving wise, but you don't really have that this year. And weirdly enough, or ironically enough, it makes sense too. But the fact is, Bryce Young is carrying this team by himself. If they didn't have Bryce Young, they would have lost more than one game by now, right? So you think about the fact that, like, he's doing all he can. The receivers aren't as great as you thought they would be. Jameer Gibbs, the running back, he's, you know, he's a transfer from Georgia Tech. He's playing his butt off, but it's, if you know, sometimes, if and, and right, I mean, he can have over 150 yards and, like, 10 catches and everything like that, but they still don't look as a, you know, as a great of a unit as you would think that they would. And then defensively, they kind of just are getting beat, right? I mean, we saw so many times in that Tennessee game where Tennessee would just stack their receivers. They'd have one guy run a, you know, run like a post to the left and the other guy would just kind of loop around him and then just go and act like he was going to cut back in and he just went straight up the field and, and score a touchdown. Um, and so that's the type of stuff where, you know, you, you look at the Alabama team and you think, you know, this just doesn't look like a normal Alabama team coached by Nick Saban. And I think that the penalties is really like the kind of the, the, the something that you wouldn't think would be a big deal, but ends up really huge in the long run. And I think that one of those penalties kind of that, that I'll bring up here just really quick is, is I think it was, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the score was, but it was, it was late in the game, Tennessee. It's like fourth and six. Oh yeah. Okay. So the score was 49 to 42. Alabama was winning. Um, Tennessee has like fourth and six and they're like, you know, at the 40 yard line or something, they throw it, you know, throw it to the end zone and Alabama gets called for, pe- uh, for pass interference on that play where the guy, like the, the receiver actually tipped the ball. It landed in Alabama defensive backs hands. He runs it back to like the 50 yard line. You're thinking, okay, that's it. Right. And then you see, okay, the flag came in for pass interference. And I saw people breaking it down on Twitter. They were like, you know, right there, even as far as the defensive back for Alabama had already ran back, like past where the right receiver, you know, had, had been impacted and there was still no flag. So it was one of those things where like, Maybe they got screwed a little bit by the refs because you were in Tennessee, right? And it's SEC refs and, right, the home team is what matters most of all. And so it, it, it almost seemed like that was the, that was the game-changing moment. If, if that was the case, Alabama had gotten that interception, it would have been game over. They would have won this easily, right? But that was the game-changing moment. Obviously, Tennessee gets, you know, first and goal. They score a touchdown. They come back to get a field goal and win the game. I don't know if that was pass interference or not. It just seemed like a very late flag. And that was, I think, kind of the the ironic part is, you know, Hayden brings us up with the topic saying that Alabama has been called for the most penalties in college football so far. And ironically enough, that one penalty is what completely changed the game and allowed Tennessee to win. So whether it be, you know, okay, well, these penalties are actually justified or not, that could be the reason why this team doesn't go as far as we think they will and why we might actually have to be worried. Hayden, what do you think? Yeah, I... I don't know. It's it's one of those things where Nick Saban is always that guy that you look at and, and say, OK, well, a lot of his success for coaching has come off of his discipline of his players. And that's and that's one of the things that it's a very good indicator of a good football team when they don't commit a lot of penalties. And like Matt said, penalties might not seem like a very big thing because it's not really talked about a lot unless a team 
like Alabama, who's so good, is committing so many penalties. And unless it's kind of like a glaring problem on a team, it's not really talked about that much. And so a lot of people don't really realize how much it can it can affect the game. But again, if you've got a, a second and 10, right, you, you go incomplete on first down, you got a second and 10 and you commit a holding penalty. And on that second and 10 play, you get the first down, but you got to go back 10 yards from where you were. And now it's a second and 20. It's it, it first of all negates your play that was a first down. Second of all, you've got double the amount of yards to get to the first down this next play. And it's like it's it's one of those things where on offense it can just demoralize an offense. Same thing with defense. It can frustrate a defense because like Matt said, a lot of times penalties called against the defense are are a little bit subjective. Like they're kind of, well, you know, that could have been a penalty, that could have not have been a penalty. Sometimes guys are just hand fighting and and sometimes it goes both ways, but it's only called one way. And so I, c- I couldn't tell you if there was a lot of, oh, it could go both ways calls on Saturday. But what I can tell you is Alabama, th- there's obviously some kind of problem and they need to fix it. And I'm very surprised that Alabama had another game like this committing over 15 penalties in one game. I'm super surprised that that happened again after the Texas game, because I'm sure that once Alabama got home from, from Texas, that, game or the the next morning i bet you they weren't even watching film they were probably out there on the track running 5500 laps because nick saban was probably just screaming at him and running them into the ground i I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case and it happened again and so on sunday they were probably doing the same exact thing running 5500 more laps and so yeah i i think that we probably shouldn't be too worried about alabama i was texting with my dad today and and he said something about Alabama and Tennessee. And I said that I think that Alabama is probably still going to be in the college football championship. I don't see that Georgia beating them in the, in the sec championship. And so I think that they'll probably get one of the top three seeds in the, in the college football playoff. They're ranked number six right now, but I think they're going to climb their way back up there and get to the college football playoff and just somehow be Alabama and, Maybe not win it, but they're still going to be contenders. I think. I don't know if this this if this loss is super indicative of, of anything because we know that Tennessee's offense is just so good, like Matt said. So that's my take on it. Speaking of Tennessee's offense, and kind of going back to what I was saying about their offensive play calling in the game, stacking the receivers, getting guys open. One of those guys who was just open the entire game. His name was Jalen Hyatt. He put up one of the craziest stat lines you'll ever see in your entire life. And it's just a crazy video game, college football, just classic, right? So the dude had six catches for 207 yards and five touchdowns. That's right. Five of his six catches were for touchdowns. And I think three of them, at least two of them were over 60 yards. I think three of there might've been another third long one in there too. So this guy, Jalen Hyatt, he's currently a junior. And so he could technically declare for the draft this year. Um, And some are saying that this game alone got him drafted, which is crazy to think about just one game creating a player's draft stock, like off of, you know, one crazy performance, but is this really an outlandish take? Could he actually be drafted or why is this not, why should we just not pay attention to this at all? And and it's kind of, you know, we need to see a little bit more. Well, I haven't heard of this guy, Jalen Hyatt until now. And maybe that's just me not being a very avid or very good college football fan, but I don't think that he was doing much before, before this. I think that in the, in the past two, so he's actually, I think he's started all three years that he's played there at Tennessee because I saw some snippet of some article saying that in three matchups against Alabama. So obviously this year, the year before, and then the year before that he's had a total of, I think it's 
307 yards and six TDs or something like that, or 307 yards and maybe seven TDs. No, 307 yards and six TDs, I'm pretty sure. I think last year he had like 89 yards and a TD against Alabama as well. And so he's performing. I think like the reason I was bringing this topic up as one of the storylines from the weekend is because this guy, Jalen Hyatt, like you, you can say, okay, yeah, you can't build your draft stock off of one game. And right. Like Matt said, he had a, he had a video game stat line. And so one game is, is probably just a fluke. He was just on fire. He was hot. Adrenaline rush was going crazy. So, right. You can't really, you can't really build that take off of that, but I'm going to sit here and say that I don't think that it is that outlandish. I do. I do think that like, if you're going to have a video game style game or a video game esque game, do it against Alabama because Alabama has one of the best defenses in all of college football. They're one of the best teams in all of college football. NFL scouts know that Alabama's defense is probably the closest to NFL caliber that you can get maybe other than Georgia in college. And so, right. Like if you're going to do something against, if you're going to have this type of game, have it against Alabama. And so I think that just off of that, just based off of him being able to have this kind of stat line against a defense that's as elite and has athletes that are as good as the ones on Alabama's defense. I don't think that that's a very outlandish take to say that this game got him drafted. Now, again, I don't think he's going to go to the draft this year. He'll probably stay another year and just go off at Tennessee because now, now his name is on the map. Right. And so if he can just keep on building, keep on building, like he's not going to be a first round draft pick off of this game only, but it might've bumped him up a, a round or two. Right. And so maybe he's sitting around the third round ish right now. And he, and next year, who knows if he stays at Tennessee, he could, and which I think he probably will since he's built all the success at Tennessee, he probably won't transfer anywhere and Tennessee should stay very good. So I think that he's probably going to stay another year in college and then just build his draft stock from there. But I wouldn't be surprised if this game alone actually did bump up his draft stock a lot. So it, it, I think it, what it comes down to is the distinguishment between what will get a player drafted versus how great they look in college. And you could argue that sounds a lot alike, Matt. Well, let me describe it a little bit more. So NFL scouts, whether that be analysts that you know work for ESPN who determine what they think their mock draft is going to be, as well as the actual scouts who work for the actual teams, general managers of you know NFL teams and everything like that. They will look at a receiver's ability to run routes, to get separation from the defensive backs, to, you know, catch the ball, you know, accurately. And, and whether that be catching the ball like in catches that you're supposed to make or catching the ball in situations where the throw is bad and they are making up for the quarterback, you know, throwing an inaccurate pass or something else like, you know, an acrobatic, you know, one handed catch, something like that. So the scouts are looking for the physical abilities to become a, an NFL wide receiver. They aren't necessarily looking as much at a crazy stat line like this, where you have six catches for over 200 yards and five of them are touchdowns. However, something like this in a game like this, in a situation and a performance and everything that happened with Jalen Hyatt in this game can at least put you on the map. And I think that's kind of what Hayden was getting at a little bit is like, hey, he may not be the first wide receiver taken off the board, but this at least put him on the map. This at least is, is getting him recognized. And hey, you know, from now on, because he had this crazy, this crazy game and, and then the stat line aside, Scouts, scouts and NFL and ESPN analysts and everybody are going to be looking at him now as more of a, hey, can this guy actually have, does he have the physical tools to be able to become a, an NFL wide receiver? Can he really run these routes effectively? Can he get separation? Can he catch the ball in times when maybe the quarterback is under duress and he'll have to kind of come back to the ball, whatever it may be, right? Any of these situations, that's what kind of starts the guy, you know, gets the guys going in terms of a 
an actual draft stock. So I, I think that, you know, this is definitely a coming out party for Jalen Hyatt. And I think the best part is, as he mentioned too, he's only a junior, right? So he doesn't even have to declare for the draft now. He could just wait an extra year. He'd get another year of tape and, and it would be great. The other thing too, I think in his favor, as it relates to the draft stock and everything like this is, you know, the team is six and zero, or I, yeah, I think they're six and zero. It was week seven in college football. So they've already had their bye, but a regular season is 12 games in college football, right? So he hasn't played the bulk of, well, he's only played half of the games on the schedule. And, and, and so, you know, now, and obviously the offense has been, has been humming, right? I mean, Malik or um, Hendon Hooker almost solidified himself as basically the number two candidate to get the Heisman. If CJ Stroud just continues to like, you know, absolutely dominate, then sure. CJ Stroud will probably win it, but Hendon Hooker, like, he has the best win you could possibly get over any college football team yet this season. And he looked amazing in that game. And if you have a guy right beside you, like Jalen Hyatt, who's going to, you know, make, making these catches and, and, and putting up these ridiculous stat lines, that's really helpful. So I think that, you know, it's almost one of those things where Hendon Hooker, the quarterback can in tandem perform so well with his wide receiver and Jalen Hyatt, that both of them, I think are going to shoot up draft boards. Both of them have the, have the potential to be in the Heisman, Heisman conversation, just simply off the stats that they're put picked putting up. And then off of that, you kind of get into the situation where, you know, scouts are going to take notice. People are going to take notice who matter to be able to kind of, you know, work up and, and, and potentially be drafted. So I think that, right. I think Hayden made a good point. He's not, he's not going to be the first wide receiver off the board, especially this year, you know, obviously next year happens and something crazy and he, he might do it. Right. But he's not going to be drafted number one overall right now, but this will at least be, this is exactly what he needed in, you know, in order to, fulfill his dream of being in the NFL. I think this is a perfect game and a perfect time to do it. So it, it was, it was an amazing story to hear him, you know, to, you know, see him accomplish all of this stuff and, and hopefully, right. He, that he gets his name out there. And and now that he's, he might be on some draft boards going forward and whether he declares at the end of this season or next season, I think he'll at least be able to, you know, be on the radar now and, and, and really put some, some more film out there for, for people to, to be able to look at and, and hopefully draft him later on. All right, let's move on to the Utah and USC game. We're going to talk about a little takeaway from this game. Honestly, this this game, Utah's win over USC is looked at by some as being kind of a David versus Goliath victory where Utah was able to basically defeat NIL because, as we know, USC has become probably the most decorated NIL school in all of college football and throughout the whole nation with Lincoln Riley moving there and him bringing along Caleb Williams and Mario Caleb Williams and Mario Williams, I think as well. And uh, that their other receiver running back, I can't forget his name, but right. They're, they're basically seen as the school that just has a pool of money and they are just an absolute destination for NIL, but Utah was able to overcome that. So I'm going to ask this question to Matt. What about this new era of college football that we're entering, what does, does this game say about the new NIL and, and money side of, of all these schools and how the money fil- filters into the game of football? What does this Utah game or what does this Utah win over USC say about this? Because, right, USC has all the money and they're expected to have all these really good players that have all these really good NIL deals. But Utah was able to overcome that and win 43 to 42. So what what's behind this? What does this say about this new era of college football? Well, it, it, it says a couple things. I think the first thing is that, you know, if you have a team like Utah who doesn't get the best recruits, they don't spend a ton of money to get their recruits on campus. They have a coach in Kyle Whittingham who, who you know, recruits two, three-star guys and coaches them up to be premier college football players. And the team 
plays together. I think that's kind of the, one of the, you know, the hallmarks of what this NIL era is going to become is you have the teams that are stacked because they're able to get the best athletes based on the NIL deals that they're, that they're going to be signing them to. But then you have the teams who have stuck together, right? The seniors who have been playing for four years and, and who have bought into the culture and everything that's going right, you know, in, in, right, in both directions for both teams. But at the same time, you have, you know, there's an option where if you're not a school like USC, who has a boatload of money to just throw with these recruits, you have teams like Utah who are kind of in the middle of nowhere. They don't get the greatest recruits, but they play as a team. They play hard and they stick together for longer developing that chemistry and that you need because football is the ultimate team game. We tell, we say it all the time. You have 11 people on the field that at one time you're going to, you're going to have to need them to play together. And so there's kind of two ways that you can win in college football. Well, football in general is but college football in terms of this specific argument, you can kind of super team it, right? Like the NBA is starting to do where you just get the best athletes possible and you can sign them to NIL deals and pay them a bunch of money to do so. Or you can just recruit guys who aren't the best athletes, but you coach them up to be great athletes and in tandem with working together and, and building that program up, you're able to do, you know, the unthinkable, which in this case was Utah beating USC. However, and we mentioned this on the podcast on Thursday, you, Utah was favored in this game. They're favored by three and a half points, which isn't nothing. Okay. So yes, it seems like a crazy upset and USC. Oh my gosh, they're undefeated. And they, you know, they suffer their first loss. And what does this mean for, well, they weren't supposed to win the game in, in, in general right now. It looked like they were going to, because I think it was, I think at one point it was 28 to, well, I think halftime 28 to 14, I think. Um, and, and then Utah, Utah came back in the second half. They made some good adjustments. Right. And that goes back to what I was saying before about, coaching and and having chemistry with the guys that you're playing with if you just have the best athletes out there on the field and you have to make second half adjustments the guys who have the biggest nil deals think they can do everything on the team and they're not going to play together they're going to you know think that they can just make all the interceptions and they're going to turn the right game around and they're going to be the star player well you can't have one star player turn around an entire half for an entire team of 22 starters right that's not going to happen what you need is guys who are going to stick together who have played together for a long time who know that you know, based on the situation, we need to make these adjustments and this is how we're going to do it. That helps in the long run. And so I think that's was, that was kind of the key in this game was USC came out, they had their athletes, they scored a bunch of touchdowns early. They got up to a lead. They were like, okay, yeah, we got this. Like, you know, this is a lot easier than we thought it was going to be. And then it was kind of reversed in the second half where Utah came out. The defense was stifling. They held UC USC to 14 total points in the entire second half. They come back down, you know, they're, they're down by a touchdown 42, 35. They go down the field with like 19 seconds left and they score a touchdown. They go for two and get it. And that's the thing is they won this game 43 to 42, not because of some crazy field goal on a last second play. They won this game 43 to 42 because it would have been 42 to 42 if they kicked an extra point, but they went for two and they won the game. And that's another thing that you get out of these well-coached teams who have stuck together for a while is the willingness to know, hey, we, we're going to have each other's backs in a time where we know that we only need to get two yards in order to win this game. We're going to do it. One guy is not going to be, you know, want to be the star and, and get all the points and everything like that. They're going to know, hey, this is the play we have to run in order to win this game. And that's exactly what they did. So it was a perfect game, I think, that kind of encapsulated you know, and I love this topic by Hayden is because it really is the tale of two stories and two programs who are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. But at the same time, both of them are successful, right? I mean, we see USC is still six and one. They're probably going to end the season with nine or 10 wins. They're going to win, you know, pretty much all the rest of their games. I think, you know, UCLA is really the only like hard team that they have left to play for USC. So they're probably win, you know, most of their games, they might only lose one or two games. And Utah, on the other hand, they've already lost two games, but now they're, you know, they're five and two, they're still ranked in the top 20 so it's like this is a perfect example of when college football 
both kind of, you know, ways of doing things can be successful. And sometimes the, the old way, the, you know, kind of more traditional playing together, sticking with it, playing as a team, coaching chemistry, bringing guys up through the program. Sometimes that wins out over your, you know, overhyped athletes and overpaid players and everything like that. So, um, so yeah, it was a great win by Utah. And, and at the end of the day, the funny thing is they didn't even cover the spread, right? So it was the, like, if you had been on Utah to win, well, they actually didn't, they, they won by one, but they didn't cover the spread. So they were favored in the game. And that's also because it's really just tough to play in Utah, like Utah, like at, and home field advantage and everything. It's insane because they're up there in the mountains and it's, you know, it's, it's cold and it's windy and everything. And they're used to playing in those conditions. Whereas a team like UCL or a team like USC, who's just kind of, you know, has the best possible weather in LA and everything like that. Like it's a little bit harder for them to travel to it, do a team like you or a place like Utah and, and, and win a game like that. But, uh, but yeah, it was a great, great game and a great win for Utah and kind of, uh, you know, definitely proves the point that, you know, sometimes this whole NIL thing might not be all that it's chalked up to be. If you have a team that's willing to just stick with it, have good coaching, bring guys up through the program and play together. Sometimes that wins out. All right. Moving on to the next topic. We've got Michigan and Penn state. They also played on Saturday and Michigan blew out Penn state. They outscored them 25 to three in the second half. And they ran for a total of 442 rushing yards, which is pretty common for them this season. I mean, they their running game has just been absolutely off the charts. Now, while they look dominant, there seems there still seems to be something missing. Is Michigan the real deal? I mean, I don't, I don't know if they are because, right, they have J.J. McCarthy at quarterback. They do have those two really good running backs in Blake Corum and the other dude, Robinson, number seven. But they kind of still continue to have this, like, little – missing hole which is the passing game and they always kind of just seem to get bailed out by their running game now in the last episode when we previewed this game i said that penn state having a very good front seven and having a very good run defense objectively i thought the penn state was going to be able to stop them and that they were going to be able to get the job done even in michigan but that ended up not happening obviously with the 442 rushing yards but the question here is is Michigan actually the real deal or will they continue to get by with a horrible non-conference schedule and the hard games that they do play all at home? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. In the non-conference, they played Colorado state, Hawaii and Yukon, which look at any type of ranking system that does that ranks like all 131 teams in college football, Hawaii, Colorado state, and UConn are, are probably all in the bottom five. Like they legitimately played bottom five teams in all of college football as three of their non-conference games. That that's, that's ridiculous. Right. Then they're only, you know, they're two big 10, well, three big 10, big 10 games so far was against Maryland who they only beat by seven Indiana, who they were like 22, 22 point favorites against. And they only won by, well, I think they won by like 20 something, but it was like 10, 10 at halftime and they weren't looking that great. And then Iowa who, the offense is just is just horrible for Iowa. But then you look at it and you're like, all right, well, Michigan, okay, you got this bad non-conference schedule and the conference games that you do play, you know, you're, they're winning, but they're not winning super convincingly. And Hayden hit the nail on the head. It's the passing game. They were supposed to come into this year with J.J. McCarthy, a new quarterback who – you know, makes plays and throws the ball downfield. And they got their star wide receiver. His name is Ronnie Bell. He actually last year read like at the very beginning of the year, he tore his ACL and he was out for the season. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, he's, he's one of the best pieces of that team and, and they lost him. And now he's back, right? He's back with these running backs and everything like that. And it's just, it's looking like they're just right. The running game just bails them out constantly. So that's kind of the, the, the point is like, you can only get by on that, you know, so much. And I understand that, you know, the, you, 
you want to run as much as possible because that's kind of, you know, the opposite of what everybody else is doing in college football here. But in a game like this where your defense is dominating Penn State and they don't even really have a chance to even move the ball at all, the running you can rely on the running game and no problem, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's you're going to tire out their defense. Their offense isn't going to be on the field for very long. You know, it, it's just a kind of a domino effect. So the running game really works. But in a game like you know, against, against a better opponent, like, right. I mean, I'm trying to pull names out of a hat here. Everything that kind of talks to me is pointing to Ohio state where they're just going to put up points at will through the air is Michigan going to be able to keep up with that type of deal. And the other thing is, and that's kind of what, you know, Hayden mentioned at the end of the topic here is like, they're playing all these games at home. I mean, Penn state is a top 10 opponent, but you go into the big house and it's just tough to win. It's the biggest stadium, I think in the entire world, like for like, you know, recreational football or you know, sporting events or whatever, there's over a hundred thousand people there. You're going to have a pretty good home field advantage. Right. So that's kind of the, the point with Michigan here is like, it, it just seems like they're not doing all they could be doing in order to prove that they are really one of the best teams in college football. Obviously they're ranked number four now because they got a top 10 win, but I mean, past Penn state, like who are the better teams that Michigan is playing and the unfortunate part is they're not really going to have to play any other hard games until that Ohio state game, which that's, I mean, we kind of even said it before the season even started. That's really what the big 10 is going to come down to, to begin with. So give and take here and there. But I think that, you know, right. That the point is that like, if you're only running the ball and you're only relying on that and you're winning the games that you're supposed to win, but you're not winning them by a good enough margin. And then your non-conference schedule is really horrible. And the good teams that you do play, they're all at home. It just kind of adds up into this like really big ball of like, you just don't really know what to do with them, but you know, they're a top five team. They're going to keep on winning. So I don't know. What do you think? Aiden? They're not going to beat Ohio state. I can tell you that. So Ohio state is going to win out for the rest of the season and they're going to go to the Big Ten Championship and then win that and then probably get – I mean, it, it honestly depends on how Alabama and Georgia do for the rest of the season because those are really the only other teams that I see stopping Ohio State from being number one at the end of the season. But, right, I think if Ohio State wins out, they'll probably be number one. I mean, Georgia is still undefeated, I think. Yeah, Georgia's still undefeated. They almost got beat by Missouri. And they're probably going to get, I think that they're going to get beat by Alabama in the SEC championship. And so both of them will probably have one loss, those two SEC teams. And then Ohio State will be sitting pretty at, at undefeated. So actually Ohio State probably was so happy about that, that Tennessee win. And right, even though Michigan is still undefeated, they're not, I don't think they're, I do not think that they're going to remain that way for the rest of the season. They're not going to make the college football playoff again. And even if they do, like we saw last season, they just got absolutely slaughtered by Alabama. So that's not going to happen again. And they're not even going to make it there. So there you go. All right. Moving over to the NFL now. So the good teams are continuing to struggle. The Packers and the Buccaneers and the Ravens, all who were you know supposed to be at the top of their conference this year, all lost on Sunday. And the teams that they play, the Jets and the Giants, are obviously doing really well. The Steelers to a lesser extent, but you know, they're on their third string quarterback and they lost their star defensive player. So, you know, they'd probably be winning more games if they're not, but they still weren't supposed to beat the Bucks this this week and they definitely did. So these teams, the Jets, the Giants, and the Steelers, and you know, some other teams are near the top of their respective conferences. Other teams, the Falcons, the Seahawks, these are two teams who were projected to be near the worst in the NFL. And both of them find themselves at, you know, the record is a three and three. And both of them are actually in the playoffs if the playoffs started right now. So we talked about this a lot last week. That's why we're not going to belabor the point with this NFL. And there wasn't really too much going on in the NFL this week. It was more so, you know, college focused, I feel like. Uh, and because we talked about literally like the Rams and the Packers and the Bucks last week and, and kind of gave reasons why we don't think they're doing too well this week, this year. And really all of that still reigns true. I mean, go listen to the podcast last week. It's basically you could replace it with this 
this week and it'd be kind of the same the same reasons would, would still hold true but after another impressive week by the teams that everyone continues to doubt when should we actually begin to consider that a couple of these teams might actually be legit the falcons i think are are legit and here's why because yes they are three and three and that's a 500 record and not the best, but like Matt said, currently, if the playoffs were to start now, they would be in the playoffs. So you can't really call that bad. But I think the Falcons are, are actually real like they and they have no reason to be real. <laughs> like, let me tell you, they have they're not using Kyle Pitts, their best weapon. And I've, I've been just an absolute complaining machine in the past about them not using Kyle, Kyle Pitts. But it seems to be working. I mean, he, he caught a touchdown this week, but I think he only had like 20 or 30 receiving yards other than that. So, right, he like they're not using him, and they're starting running back Cordero Patterson. He's on IR, so he's out for at least four weeks. I think he got injured last week, so this was the second week that he was out. So he's going to be out for at least the next two weeks. Their backup, Tyler Algier, is pretty good. I mean, he's, he's been doing pretty well. But I think, like, it's it's weird how they just somehow win these games, and they, they score enough points to the point where their defense can, can just play – decently and they win the game and in past games like I think against the Bucks they didn't win that game basically because of that roughing the passer call that they had called against them on Tom Brady that shouldn't have been a roughing the passer call they probably would have won the game on that again I don't really know I don't really remember the context of that game because I didn't watch it and I'm watching other games that are more exciting but I actually might start watching Falcons games now because they they just continue to impress and they beat the 49ers this past week and the 49ers are one of those teams that we expect to possibly make the Super Bowl. And they looked so good against the Rams in that Monday night game. They were just absolutely dominant. They've been really good this whole season. Jimmy Garoppolo is getting the job done there, and their defense is just so, so good. But again, this Falcons team was able to put up like, what, 27, 28 points on the 49ers defense? Who would have thought? And the 49ers defense has one of the best rushing defenses in in the whole league. But let me tell you who else has one of the best rushing defenses on the league. It's the Falcons. The Falcons also have a very, very good rushing defense, which again, you would never really expect. But I think through the first like two or three weeks, they were ranked number one in rushing defense or like rushing yards allowed the fewest rushing yards allowed and, and throughout the whole league. And so, right they're they're just kind of like this silent killer who is sitting there and, loses close games and loses games in in very dramatic fashion because they're one of those teams that will be up in the first half and then in the second half just not do anything and then just get beat out and and you know get outscored by two plus touchdowns that's happened i think two or three times this season and so right if they didn't if they haven't had that happen to them they might be in a spot like 5 and 1 or something like that you know like the like the giants this year and again Matt that was another team that Matt mentioned as, as being one of the surprising teams this year is the giants. And for the giants, I think it's Brian Dayball. He's, he's just like, there's no other answer to this. I don't think Brian Dayball is working that offense really well. Saquon is staying healthy. That's a huge part as well. But again, the giants defense as well, they're, they're playing very, very good defense. Um, They had, I forget how many picks that they had yesterday, but they, I mean, they had like two, maybe two or three picks yesterday. And, Right. They came back against the Ravens who were beating them. I think the Ravens were beating them 20 to 10 at one point in the first half. And then they came, they ended up beating them or scoring two unanswered touchdowns and beating them 24 to 20. The Ravens are a really, really tough team to beat and the giants were able to do it. So I think that the giants and the Falcons are probably the two teams that I'm most surprised about and that I'm most high on right now. The jets are the other team that, that we mentioned that's being bad and, 
or that's that's being good and they're supposed to be bad. But I think that the Jets might regress a little bit. I think that their offense has been getting kind of lucky with those like weird motions that they do with Brees Hall and stuff. I don't know. I I think the Jets are a little bit more faulty, but I would I would say that that even the Falcons, who have a worse record than the Jets right now, are probably going to finish the season better than them and surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I'll talk about the Jets a little bit, I guess, because they beat the Packers and the Packers are my favorite team. And it was just it was just a bad Sunday all around for your boy. The Jets are a very young team. And I think it's just one of those things where the teams that line up to play them just assume that they're going to lay down or they're going to do a bunch of stupid stuff and they're going to kick themselves in the butt and they're going to not be able to win these games and or compete for the entirety of the game or not make mistakes or any of this stuff. But it ends up being the fact that, like, I think a lot of these teams are just going up against the Jets being like, you know, we got this, right? And then it kind of comes game time and the Jets start out fast and they never really look back. And the other teams are just kind of looking there like, whoa, wait, what just happened? I think the key is the Jets defense. They're playing really well. I mean, you you know, you, you saw them even early in the season. I think they played the Ravens in the first game of the season and it was like a rainy game or whatever. But Lamar Jackson, I think, had had like, very very few rushing yards they were actually able to shut them down um you know obviously right they got like they lost to the Bengals, like a team that they're kind of supposed to lose again but like since then right miami last week like obviously miami had kind of their first string quarterback for most of that game but the jets put up 40 points like you tell me if two was in the game you know maybe they'll score 40 points right so it's one of those things where the offense is clicking in times when they need to and the defense is is kind of pulling it up on the back end i mean holding aaron Rodgers to 10 points total like that's that's pretty good you know and so i think the jets are just kind of just being they're being doubted by the teams that they're playing more so than like the media is i think the media is kind of just like hey we'll see what happens and and they're just such a young team that you never really know what will happen and then it kind of comes time for you know for the teams they line up against to actually play them and they're kind of getting surprised by how physical the team is and how well their rookies are playing i think that's probably the other good thing to to point out here is jermaine johnson right he was like a an absolute freak and he falls to like number 26 in the draft and he's been doing really well Brees hall hadn't mentioned he's i mean you know he was i think the first running back taken and he's really showing why and, and, and that he, you know, he all, everything that he did at Iowa state for the past, like four years is really is actually, you know, the truth. And then obviously, you know, Zach Wilson's in his second year and he's still learning. And so you have a lot of young pieces on this team and, they're just they're they're kind of playing with house money because at this at the same time like they don't need to be good right now it'll take a few years for them to kind of get dialed in and really gel together and really kind of you know have any sort of expectations but if they're playing this well this young i mean you know they're kind of just going to figure it out eventually i feel like so um but i do agree with hayden it's it's it's, they're probably on a little bit of high right now, and, and it might, you know, might tank a little bit uh, down here, you know, as the season goes on a little bit. The other team I'll talk about briefly is the Seahawks. A lot is being made about how basically, you know, all the stats are proving that the Seahawks just aren't really that much different now that they have Geno Smith instead of Russell Wilson. And kind of the whole deal is like, and now that Russell Wilson's not playing well in Denver, well, was he really the problem or was he as good as everybody kind of thought he was? Maybe not, right? And I think that the Seahawks offense is proving that they're putting up points regardless of who the quarterback is. They have weapons on the outside, you know, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are two legitimate, really good receivers. You had Rashad Penny in the backfield. He goes down. Kenneth Walker steps right up as a rookie and he's performing just basically as, as well as Rashad Penny would, or, or even, you know, Chris Carson of, of years past. So all this stuff is kind of working well for the Seahawks. Now, again, this game against in, in on Sunday, I think, this, I think the Cardinals are, are, broken but it's one of those things that despite the that despite that fact like the Seahawks went in there and got a win right that that like that's what matters is in a game when you're playing a team that just doesn't really know its identity and there's a lot of problems going on in Arizona if you're the Seahawks and you're in a competent team then you 
you, you pick up on that and you win those games. And that's exactly what they did. So if they were one of the worst teams in the NFL, like that doesn't happen, right? Like if you're the Texans, no, you know, no fault of the Texans, but they're probably the worst team in the NFL. Like they play that game against the Cardinals and the Cardinals just find a, a way to win because the Texans aren't able to pick up on, you know, kind of the, the opportunities that the Cardinals give them based on how you know badly they're playing. But the Seahawks did. And yes, it was a low scoring game, but they still did it and they found a way to win and they won convincingly by 10 points. And so, yeah, they didn't put up 40 points, but they didn't have to. They still got a double digit win, putting up less than t- less than 20 points. So, you know, they, they kind of are doing what they need to do. And yeah, they're three and three. They're literally, I think if they had beaten if they had beaten the 49ers in that one game they played, they'd be in first in the NFC West right now. There's obviously, I mean, the other teams are also, also three and three. So, you know, the, the Rams and the 49ers are also three and three and the Cardinals are two and three. So it's going to be an interesting division to see kind of who ends up taking it, taking it, you know, for themselves, but the Seahawks are right there. Right. I mean, they're, they're in the playoffs as of now, same with kind of like the Falcons, like, and, and as Hayden said, so, yeah. So I think, you know, obviously, right. I don't think, I don't expect these teams to end up making the playoffs, but if this just continues, like we kind of have to give them, you know, give them their respect from here on out. All right, let's move on to MLB. So the championship series are about to start. We are one round before the world series. Well, that will be one round, one round before the world series. It's basically like the NFC championship in football and AFC championship and everything like that. So we should probably at least mention some baseball. I'm going to talk about this topic at first and then I'm going to let Matt do all the analysis because I don't really watch baseball. So the Phillies and the Padres play in the NLCS and the Astros and the Astros will play the winner of the decisive game five between the Yankees and the guardians. You might notice that three of these four teams were never close to being in the conversation for top for the top teams in the league earlier in the year. So Matt's going to go ahead and explain yet another emerging problem with baseball as well as our picks or his picks for the rest of the playoffs. Yeah. So, so far, well, just in general, the baseball playoffs work like this. All right. So you have obviously your, your teams that win their division, similar to football. Okay. Your teams your, win your divisions, you're automatically in the NLDS or in the ALDS, the division series, right? Uh, based on whichever league you're in, American League or, or National League. Then you have the wild cards, the teams that didn't win their divisions. They are matched up in the wild card round. Now, the wild card for the past, I think, two or three years, the wild card game was one game of baseball and that determined your entire playoff future. That's basically, it was basically a sudden death. Whoever wins that game moves on to the playoff series and plays the, you know, ALDS and LDS. Now, what is the problem with that? Well, oh, I think I know. It's the fact that they play 162 games in the regular season and your entire season that, you know, six months of games, 162 times that you're out there on the field playing three hours, usually more worth of baseball comes down to one game that if your pitcher kind of sucks or you don't hit many home runs or you just aren't as good as you think that or that you're supposed to be that your record says that you would be you're out of the playoffs. Goodbye. And this almost happened to the Dodgers the year that they won the World Series. They were in the wild card ground simply because they you know, I think they had won like close to a hundred games or something like that. They're the, over, they're the overwhelming best team. They're the favorite to win the world series. And they actually played the Padres in that game and like had a miracle comeback in the ninth inning, which is gonna, actually going to be a theme of kind of what I'm going to talk about here for what's been having, happening recently, but still had a, like a ninth inning miracle comeback win. And they actually, and they won the game miraculously. And then, then they, you know, obviously win the world series, but like, if they just don't have that insane comeback, they're out of it. You're like the best team all year long, no matter what happens. So whatever. Anyway, spared all that oxygen basically to say that they changed it up now. So the wild card round is now a best of three series. So you have to win two of three games. And that's still, I mean, you could still argue 162 regular season games comes down to 
two games where your pitcher might suck and there you go. You're out of the playoffs. But regardless, we got some pretty good teams and the teams that won. Okay, cool. Then we played the ALCS and the NLCS. What happened was the Phillies played the Braves and the Padres played the Dodgers. Now, if you know anything about baseball, guess who were the best two teams in the NL last year? That's right. It was the Dodgers and it was the Braves. And the Braves ended up winning the World Series. They come into this year. Both teams are favorites to win the the World Series again. Braves and Dodgers, that's all it is, right? So here they are against the Phillies and the Padres, respectively. Well, the Phillies just crushed the Braves. They actually won three straight games. It's best of five when you get to the ALDS or the NLDS or, you know, the division series, as it's supposed to be called. The Phillies dominate the Braves, beat them in three games straight, and just completely sweep them. So now the Phillies are in the NLCS and with a chance to go to the World Series. Okay, well, that's kind of crazy, but hey, I mean, the Phillies had kind of a good run, I guess. They were in the wild card, and they you know, they beat the Cardinals, and now they're, oh, wow, all right, they're in the NLCS. Despite the fact that the Braves, you know, this entire time were World Series favorites, they just have three games where they kind of were not that great after 162 games of really being a great team. Nope, sorry, goodbye, you're going home. So the Phillies are in the NLCS. Padres and Dodgers, basically the exact same thing happened. The Dodgers won the World Series a couple of years ago. They come there every season. They've been the favorite to win because their pitching is amazing and their hitting is off the chains. And they won, I think they won 111 games this year, which is the most since I think the 2001 Mariners. So basically they had more wins in the regular season this year than any team has had in, you know, basically a 20 year record. Okay. Um, which they didn't break the 20 year record, but most wins in, you know, 21 years, basically for, 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 for records purposes, did the, the, the Dodgers and they play, Four games against the Padres, and they lose three of them, and they're out. Bye. See ya. Braves, Dodgers, you were the best toe teams all year. You are the favorites to win the World Series. Yeah, well, you weren't that good in two games, so uh, Padres and Phillies are now going to be in the NLCS. So the problem here, and this is kind of what Hayden was getting at when he introduced the topic to begin with, is the fact that this is the problem. We play 162 games in the regular season, and it comes down to your, a couple games where your pitchers might not be on point, or you might not. The, the ball that you hit out of the stands might be foul instead of fair. And because of that, you're not going to be able to win a world series. Now it does make for more parity in the league. And we've seen this across most times in the MLB, the play, the team that wins the world series is usually not the team that you expect, or usually not the team that, Oh, well, they've been the best team all year. And so they deserve to win. Um, it, it's a team that kind of, you know, can get hot at a certain time and they will be, really kind of supported by their fans and they'll just make the world series and they'll win it. Right. Which is, I think is cool to some extent, but the fact of the matter is you're not rewarding the teams enough who have played well enough throughout the regular season to be able to actually win the championship of the sport that they've been dominating for the entire six months. So whatever, I, I mean, I'm not going to get all worked up about this, but it's just the fact that like, I don't care that much about baseball and the fact that the teams that I know about have now lost because they didn't get a real actual chance to win these games are now not even competing anymore. So that's the NL side. The AL side is the Houston Astros, who have, I think are actually going to win the World Series. My predictions will come pretty soon. Um, they've been a wagon all year long. They swept the Mariners in the ALDS. Now they're going to play the winner of the Yankees and the Guardians, which that game is actually starting right now. So we won't know the winner until the end of the podcast, but either way. So the Yankees and the Guardians, basically whoever wins, let's say it's the Guardians, they win, and now you have the Astros versus the Guardians and then the Phillies versus the Padres. And it's like, who is going to watch this sport? In a sport that's already playing their playoffs in the middle of football season on the same days that they play football, what are you doing with your lives, MLB? That's the problem here. And so, great, whoever wins the World Series, okay, cool, but it's just nobody's going to watch it. The teams that were the best aren't even at the, at the end of it. You know, basically, besides the Astros, none of the teams that were really good during the regular season are even still alive. And so you kind of just going to end up with a 
a random champion, I guess. Um, it'll be fun. Again, I kind of like watching playoff baseball. It's definitely a lot better than regular season baseball. But the point remains, this is the emerging problem with baseball. And so there you go. Uh, in terms of playoff predictions, I do think the Padres are going to beat the Phillies. Um, see, now I say that and I'm like, dude, the Phillies have just absolutely crushed everyone they've played. You know what? Give me the Phillies. They're probably not. They're probably actually going to be underdogs in this series just because the Padres, obviously, they have Juan Soto. They have Fernando Tatis Jr. They have uh, Joe Musgrave is a really good pitcher for them. Where the Phillies, obviously, I mean, they have Bryce Harper. So like he kind of always giving them a chance to win, but their pitchers aren't that great, but they've just kind of been, they've been scoring like eight runs a game in the playoffs. So give me the Phillies to beat the Padres in the NL on the AL side. I think, like I said, regardless of who wins versus, you know, against either the Yankees, or the guardians, whoever wins that series, the Astros, I think are going to win that. And I get, I had the Astros winning the world series over the Phillies. So at least to some extent, if that comes true and the Astros do win, they were the second, I think the second best team in terms of, you know, record and everything in the, in the regular season. So at least we'll have some sort of, some sort of icing on the cake as to, you know, a good team in the regular season is going to continue their dominance in the playoffs and, and hopefully win the world series. Uh, so, but that is by no means a good prediction because I don't really watch that much baseball. And I'm just kind of pointing out the, the facts here that are not really that entertaining to watch the games, especially when your best teams and the teams that are supposed to win all year and the teams that you hear about throughout the year, just aren't actually even playing at the time when it really matters most. Um, so that's our baseball talk, which is usually, usually ends up being depressing and this is not one of the, or this is another one of those circumstances. All right, let's move on to the NBA. So we're going to give a little bit of a NBA season preview here. It's going to be pretty short and sweet because we don't really talk. We don't talk much about NBA and MLB and the other sports that happen that kind of start and end during football season. We don't really talk about those sports as much as football, but we want to give a little bit of a, a little bit of a preview here. So the NBA season starts tomorrow or today for most people. So let's end off the podcast with a little bit of a season preview here. The Warriors seemed to gain some stability after the Draymond incident where he punched Jordan Poole in the face at practice, which was really crazy and very uncalled for by him. But their championship opponent, the Celtics, this past year might start the season similar to how they did last year, which if you don't remember what they did last year, they were like 20 and 20 through the first 40 games. And then they had a crazy back half of the season and came into the playoffs as one of the most decorated teams and then lost and, and, then, and then beat the Nets. And like that was a huge thing because the Nets, I, I thought the Nets were going to beat them and with all the talent that they had on that team. But right. The Celtics ended up getting to the to the NBA Finals, but they lost against the Warriors, and so we might see them start a little bit similar to how they did last year. But let's also go over some teams that might surprise this year, such as you know the Grizzlies, Pelicans, Timberwolves, uh, the Nuggets who got J- bad Jamal Murray, and the Cavaliers who got Donovan Mitchell over the over the offseason. I think that the Pelicans are probably going to be the team that everybody's looking at the most in terms of making a quick turnaround because they've been, they've actually been doing pretty well recently without Zion Williamson. Like last year they made the playoffs. They lost in the first round. I forget against who, but wasn't it the Warriors that they lost? It was, no, it was the Suns who were the number one seed oh, and they right. were supposed to win the championship and they took them to, well, I, think, I think they took them to six games, but it was yeah. almost a game seven and yeah, they played well. Yeah, exactly. They did. They did play really well and they have, you know, Lonzo ball and, and now with Zion Williamson back, if he can stay healthy and he's looking really, he's actually looking a lot more slimmed down, which is great to see and that'll actually hopefully help his injury problems but he actually just re-injured his ankle I think yesterday or a couple days ago or something like that but he's he's expected to play against the Nets on Wednesday I've read so hopefully he will kind of take care of that ankle while also still playing again they don't need him to like they don't need to go full speed right out of the gate here the Pelicans 
I really hope that Zion can stay healthy because when he's on the floor, like he is a different player. He's, he's, he's a different presence when he's on the floor. And again, when they have, you know, Lonzo and they have um, the other dude from the other dude from UVA, I I forget. He graduated from UVA a couple, couple years ago. It was like Trey something. Trey Murphy. Yeah. Trey Murphy. Uh, They have him. He's, he's become like a good corner specialist for them. So I think that I'm probably looking at the Pelicans the most to kind of, make a, a big turnaround because again, without their best player in Zion Williamson, they were still able to make the playoffs last year and kind of give the Suns a run for their money as you know, with the Suns being the one seed. So them, and then also the nuggets, obviously getting back Jamal Murray from injury, that's going to be huge for them. They also have Jokic and Jokic is just, he's just proved to be an absolute force. He's won what two MVPs in a row. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to see the nuggets do really well as well. As long as as long as Jamal Murray stays healthy, those are the two teams that I'm going to talk about. Matt, maybe you can talk about some teams that we are going to maybe see tank this year. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you kind of always have teams that are going to be a little bit, you know, they're not going to compete as much. And that might be or might not be on purpose. They're going to tell you that it's not on purpose, but I can tell you for sure that it is on purpose. And that's because they have the based on record, they get a better chance to get the best draft pick. Now this year is special, extremely special, more special than you could argue any other year draft wise in the entire history of the NBA draft. And that is because the number one pick next year is going to be a guy named Victor Wembenyama, who is from France and he's absolutely dominating. He's actually playing for um, team ignite, which is kind of this side league, which I actually I read about and kind of got into actually a long time ago and actually kind of, is, is sort of a sort of an NIL type of, well, it's like a substitute for NIL. It's basically saying, hey, if you don't want to, if you know that you're going to be a one and done and you don't want to go to college and enroll and take classes and just basically go through the motions of pretending to be a college student just because you already know that you're going to get drafted in the NBA, we'll basically kind of create a side league where it's like semi-pro. You have a bunch of guys who are in college right now or supposed to be in college that are going to be drafted as well as guys who are older and may still just want a shot at playing in the league pay these guys to have them play these games, you know, kind of make other teams and play other, whether it be international, whatever. And that's kind of how this league works. Now he, Victor Wemanyama plays for this team and he is, he's seven foot four. I think he has a seven foot eight wingspan. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And he basically is like the second coming of Kevin Durant. He's only just like a, a half a foot taller. So it's insane. Like his, his range, his three point, his, his ball handling skills, his passing skills. It's like everything that you would want in a, in an NBA prospect. And people are saying, I'm not going to say definitively here, but I've heard it from many reputable sources that he is the single best prospect since LeBron James. Now, you, if you weren't around for when LeBron James was getting recruited out of high school, I wasn't even really old enough to be super into following sports and recruiting and all that. But it's like, I mean, imagine LeBron and how good he's been. And it's like, everybody knew that he was going to turn into this even back in high school. Like that's what, that's what we're dealing with here with Victor Wembanyama. So it's kind of like, if, if you don't really have that great of a team right now, and you know that your team will get better by drafting this guy next, next April, then you might as well just try to not really win that many games so that you can draft him or, you know, and get the number one pick because he is very, very likely a franchise changing player. Now, couple of the teams that will be likely competing for this title or for this draft pick or whatever it may be the Pacers who, I mean, they made headlines because they traded for um, Tyrese Halliburton, who was a good player, but not like, 
going to change the way that your team plays, you know, whatever. Um, the Pistons, who are a pretty young team developing, right? Like they they won games last year that they weren't really supposed to, but they still lost like the majority of their games. Um, and and so, you know, but they they drafted high this year. They have good play. Obviously, they have Kate Cunningham, who's kind of the star of the team and, and really actually did perform really well last year. So it's one of those things that you kind of, he was worth the number one pick, you know, when he was a couple of years ago too. So, so, but still the Pistons are, are going to be horrible. <laughs> um, the Spurs, which this is the interesting part because the Spurs are coached by Greg Popovich, who, as you may know, is one of those guys who's very traditional, likes bringing up his players and sticking with a, you know, same team for a while now. And, and is, and is kind of contrary to the belief that you would think that you would want to tank. Right. But he's kind of, I think he's, he's almost going out of his way to say that he's going to, which is really interesting because if he does get Weminyama, it's kind of one of those things where he'll just find a way to make the Spurs a perennial playoff contender again and, and possibly win some championships. So it's going to be interesting to see how kind of they are, are going to are going to be battling for this position of basically the worst in the NBA. And then the Thunder, who, aside from a, a couple cool years with, with Russell Westbrook there when he was just stat stuffing and winning the MVP and averaging a triple-double, they have they were making the playoffs like maybe once a couple they had Chris Paul for a year and made the playoffs but other than that they've they really haven't and essentially especially after they traded Russell Westbrook to the Lakers they haven't done anything well Russell Westbrook went to the Rockets first and the Lakers but either way they haven't done anything whatever their best player Shea Gilgis Alexander he's a really good player but the problem is they don't play him but they don't play him on purpose it's this weird thing where it's like they're almost going out of their way to tank and letting everybody know because it's like okay, we have really good players and, and, but we're, we're just not going to play them like on purpose because they sit so that we lose more games, but the Thunder are a really interesting case here. And that's why I want to end on them because they actually have stacked up all these picks. Like in the, I think in the next five drafts, they have like seven first round picks, which is or maybe more, maybe nine first round picks or something like that. So the, two, the pieces that they had traded away, they've gotten a lot back for. And if these, these drafts upcoming, if they can actually score in their picks, they can really turn this franchise around similar to kind of what the, what the Sixers did, um, you know, for all those years there. And I think Sam Presti, who was the general manager of the Sixers when they were tanking all those years is now the, is now the Thunder's general manager. So he's kind of just doing the same thing. And Hey, I mean, it worked out kind of for the Sixers because they're at least in the conversation now, right? They might, they might could possibly win the East this year. They probably won't because James Harden, unless he's really good, who knows? But uh, yeah, so those are your teams that are going to be tanking. Hayden went over the teams that are going to be good. I think it's, I think it's gonna be an exciting season. I'm kind of more into NBA this year than I was in, in previous years. Um, so we'll be, we'll be kind of shooting some updates here every so often to kind of just see how things are going. It probably won't be until like, you know, probably at least a month from now to even kind of get some games under our belt and see what's going on. Um, but that's what we did last year. So we'll kind of keep it up this year and, you know, excited for the season to start. Yeah. I think we should also do some, some NHL stuff in the near future as well. NHL season just started. I think there's some teams have played three games. Other teams have played. Well, no, some teams have played three games. Some teams have played two, I think, but right. It's, it's the very beginning of the season. So we're not going to talk about it yet, but I am, I am trying to get more into NHL and my college roommates are actually pretty into NHL as well. And so they're almost like forcing me to watch NHL with them, which is pretty cool on days that there's no football. And so, yeah, I'm going to try to get into NHL a lot more this season, as well as NBA as well. I'm going to try to follow it as much as possible with everything else that goes on in my life. But yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's definitely going to be a fun season. And then I, I can actually talk about those sports after football ends. We will, we will not have me just making mistake after mistake talking about NBA and NHL that I've done in the past. Now, again, I mean, I've, I think I've done a pretty good job in the past of talking about the playoffs and watching the playoffs in order to, to talk about, to be able to talk about them on this podcast. But I did make a promise to you guys in 
the playoffs of the NBA and the NHL last season that I would follow this regular season a lot more closely in order to be able to really go in depth after football. And so that's that. And yeah, like Matt said, we will, we would probably get back to you with more NBA and MLB and NHL talk and stuff like that in about a month here. But until then, it's going to be mostly football. We do have a fun segment coming up. I don't think that there's going to be an episode. Not, I don't think there's definitely not going to be an episode the rest of this week because Matt and I are going to our cousin's wedding this weekend and we have to drive 13 hours there and back. And so, and it's a wedding weekend, so we're not going to have any time to do anything. So you won't hear from us until most likely next Monday again, maybe even next Tuesday. So it'll be about a week until you hear from us again. And it'll be the same old review of, of the football weekend, because even though we do have a wedding to attend this weekend, we will still be following football and, and getting all those scores and stats and hot takes out there for you. So be on the lookout for that next week. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you then.